Welcome to another episode of Coder Conversations. We have special guest, Eric Bird. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, man, we're glad to have you. Um, you've been a longtime listener. Uh, we, you know, we'd like to thank you for supporting us. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, uh, can you uh, give us a little bit about your background and you know how, what, what got you into coding? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, it's, I've been, uh, so I've been uh, working in uh, software for well, since the mid-90s, approximately. I'm working, working in a variety of different areas. So the last 16 years, I've been working in medical devices, working as a you know, software engineer, data scientist, and product manager on uh, various medical devices for uh, robotic surgery and wearable wearables. Uh, got into programming at an early age, started at eight years old, and started with basic, and then went to assembly language, and then just went from there. So, um, like when you first started programming, what, what were the prevalent languages? Oh, let's see. Back then, it would have been uh, some variant of BASIC. Back in those days, it was mostly you had. Uh, well, I used to used Atari, so they had Atari BASIC. But the Commodore had its version of BASIC. Uh, of course, they also had Apple, the Apple IIs, those computers, the old ones. Uh, so they all pretty much had BASIC at that time. So that's pretty much what I used. What was it like uh, programming back then? Because I know they didn't really have like the internet. Yeah, it was nowhere near as convenient. <laughs> yeah, it was very different because back because nowadays we have with the internet, you've got all these resources online versus back then you had magazines, you had books, you had uh, user groups. You would have computer clubs that were all over the place. So you would physically meet other like-minded engineers and start talking about anything with programming. So that's how a lot of information was shared. There were some bulletin boards where you would use an old acoustic dial-up modem at 300 baud, which were ridiculously slow, but that was what we had at the time. Uh, so things were very different in terms of getting information and what have you. So very, very different. <laughs> so I know uh, troubleshooting was a lot different. You couldn't just simply go Google it up. So how, how did you solve like hard problems back then? Oh, solving hard problems back then, you, you really had to uh, spend a lot of time just rolling up your sleeves and just understanding what was going on. Uh, a lot of it was just detective work. And quite often I would uh, get into some low level uh, either schematics sometimes and actually look at what's going on here. As uh, all too often, especially on the Atari, uh, they had a big manual that you could purchase back in the day uh, that was that had all the schematics on everything. Hmm. So you could just look at all these locations or, okay, this memory location, it refers to this component and so forth. So you had to actually figure out what you were doing. So you spent a lot of time on padded paper <laughs> figuring out what was going on because you didn't have these integrated development environments like we do now. It's not like Visual Studio Code or anything like that. Those did not exist at all. So, yeah, it was just a lot of tedious work. What, what was it like back then? Just like a basic text editor? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, you can get an emulator uh, for the Atari. Uh, you can act, it's uh, Altera or something like that. Uh, so you can actually get an idea of what it looked like. <laughs> oh, I never heard of it. Uh, what, what, yeah. what were some of the programs you were making back then? Uh, I made a variety of different programs. Uh, uh, it's all kinds of stuff. I mean, when I made, I made uh, one program to store my mom's recipes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I actually, so I made a one program where you could, you could type in all the different recipes and what have you and store them to disk. And 
okay, what's this recipe? Okay, load it up and you could edit it and change it and whatnot. So uh, like once you got to college, um, like what, how, how prevalent was computer science then? Like, is, I, I'm sure it wasn't pushed like it was now. Um, yeah, def- there was quite a few. Um, it was pretty big back then too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, like, what, what what were some of the languages you were using around that, around that time? Let's see. Well, by that time, I was I was doing assembly. I was doing C, C plus uh, plus, Pascal. That was another one. <laughs> in fact, one of the uh, uh, in fact uh, the first program class they taught, yeah, it was in Pascal. Oh, wow. uh, which I which I had used before in high school. There was a uh, a summer program where uh, we would. Uh, uh, learn Pascal programming. And so we went to one local high school, uh, which had a mainframe computer, go figure. And it was one of these systems that it took up a size of a giant room. I mean, it was air conditioned the whole nine yards. And that's where we wrote our code on it. <laughs> go figure. It was like, wow. And this is when I had a hard drives, which were not these little ones you see in your computer. We're talking like this, <laughs> oh, wow. like big platters, like this tall and it's like, damn, <laughs> mm-hmm. they were huge. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it sounds way different than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Night, night and day. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, now it seems like there's a lot more abstractions as well. So Yeah, mm-hmm. quite a bit. <laughs> you you kind of feel like um, like students are missing out, not you know really going into the lower level, just starting off with the abstractions? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about missing out so much. And I mean, I think it's just because where I started out, because I started off at the low level, so to speak. So because when I started off with Atari, you know, it went to basic, but then I just went to assembly, this hmm. which going from one extreme to the other. So I went there and that's where you get really low level. So for me, I just chose to start there, I guess. Was, that's just what I did. Um, I, I think it would be helpful for students to understand some of the lower the lower level so this you understand how and why things work because all too often i'll see with students where they're like do you really understand what's going on you know at the low level and mm-hmm. they really don't know and so I, I think it's it's good to have abstraction but to a certain point and i think they've sort of moved a little too far toward abstraction and they need to sort of move the pendulum back a little bit you know, just to so they understand the how and why things work right yeah i think you know like uh, there, there's a point like you know probably the early 2000s where corporations they really needed programmers so yeah. they were doing anything that you know anybody would oppose they would let them in mm-hmm. so like do you feel like the boot camps they're kind of not really preparing um programmers or do you feel like they're doing a good job mm, i don't think they're doing a good job it, overall some do some do better than others but i've seen so much variation that um uh, uh frankly i'm not impressed with them <laughs> Yeah, it's either they teach obsolete skills or they don't do a very good job of it. Um, they don't emphasize testing, which is a big deal, especially in my line of work. Testing is mm-hmm. everything, especially in medical devices. So yeah, there's quite a, there's a lot of room for improvement. Oh yeah, can, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, current industry? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I just so I'm currently working for a medical device company called Abbott Diabetes Care. Uh, so this is a one division of Abbott, the large company, uh, so we're based over in Alameda. Uh, so we work, so we work, uh, we make various devices for measuring glucose and monitoring it, 
and so forth. So that's where I'm working now. Uh, previously, I worked over at Gala Health, which is a medical device company that makes a wearable device for treating essential tremor. Uh, and then before that, I worked at a company called Prosify Robotics, which makes an automated uh, robotic system for uh, prostate surgery. And before that, I went to uh, worked at Restoration Robotics, uh, which was an automated robot that performs uh, hair transplant surgery. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, 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 uh, what was your task in that uh, particular job? Oh, for Restoration Robotics? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, right for there, I, I started off very early. I was one of the early employees, like employee 10. You know, we we're very ground level. Uh, so I was a software engineer and just took over from there, took over larger parts of the parts of the system and, you know, definitely did, uh, did a lot more work, particularly with uh, the building out the system as grew organically. I was just working on it up until we got our FDA approval, which was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful goal that we had. And so I, I worked on just about everything on that system <laughs> quite literally. So I was very hands-on and then eventually uh, did a lot more operations and production and help them out on that. So just trying to get the systems out in the field. So I would go with the field service engineers. We go to a client site, so we go to a doctor or a clinic and we would actually physically install it. So like uh, for an industry like that, um, I know it's potentially something that could harm the customer. So right. You mentioned there's like a lot of regulations. Like, how do you ensure that the, the team is staying in line with those regulations? Yeah. Well, so typically we have um, you have a quality management system put in place, and that's where you have a director of regulatory uh, who comes in and makes sure we're following all the necessary uh, regulatory uh, aspects of it. So, typically with software engineering on uh, uh, medical devices, uh, we follow a standard called IEC 6304. And that specifies what needs to be done. It's a pretty elaborate uh, standard. It doesn't tell you how to do it, but it tells you what you need to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because they do know that every device is different, but okay, but here's what you need to do. So depending on what type of medical device that you are, you have different levels of requirements for that. And they have it specified on a, on a, on a table what you need. <laughs> so you have class one, which are medical devices that cannot hope that basically will not harm you uh, or cause serious harm. You got class two that can that can cause serious harm. And then you got class three, which you know can effect can potentially kill you. <laughs> and when you get to class three, that'd be like your like a pacemaker, you know, the defibrillator, something where if this fails, you, it's possible you can die. Uh, class two would be something like an X-ray machine. And what I worked on, where okay, you can't have serious injury, but not necessarily kill you. <laughs> and then class one would be like band-aids, <laughs> something like that. So how do you like uh, mentally prepare yourself for an industry like that where, you know, you're potentially saving or, you know, mm -hmm. even harming somebody's life? Well, uh, the goal is we try to help people. <laughs> and then for, for, for people who go into medical devices, they generally want to help help people. You know, to help improve people's lives. I mean, we definitely keep a very positive mindset and we're always thinking about the customer and we think about risk on a daily basis. We're always thinking about, oh, okay, how can this impact the patient in some way, whether it's um, a software bug or some other issue. So we're always thinking about that continuously. And we, we try to 
not to think about you know hurting people <laughs> too much it's <laughs> like uh, we just we try to keep things positive we try to avoid avoid any risks and so we do a lot of risk analysis and uh, much of your time is spent doing that uh, you you mentioned uh, unit tests as being very mm -hmm. important. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so t tell us about uh you know like what's what's a good unit test or you know. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Well, for good unit tests, well, well, the one thing that they have to make sure that they're well, the one they actually work. Like <laughs> right, that unit mm -hmm. test where, oh yeah, we ran the unit test. Well, okay, are they valid? You know, are they really testing what you're supposed to be testing? Are they meeting, mm -hmm. a, are they meeting a requirements? Uh, are they up in the test requirements, I should say. Uh, yeah, can you, you know, rerun the tests over and over again? Are they reliable? Uh, and, you know, making sure that are they kept up to date? Are we adding, so to make sure that the unit tests don't become, the cells become stale and they're not testing anything that's uh, current. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think uh, when it comes to unit testing, uh, the amount of effort that's required to keep them going is underestimated because <laughs> it's it's a lot of work in terms of setting it up setting up all the infrastructure and making sure you got it all integrated in your continuous deployments and integration so it's it's a lot of work yeah, especially if uh one of you know something you change something a whole bunch of these tests break you know you gotta oh, go yeah. back fix them <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hopefully, you don't do that, but that can happen. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of like one of the things about unit tests. Uh, you know, how many people actually like when the tests are breaking? Do they actually actually examine what's going on, and mm -hmm. as opposed to just changing the unit test to get them working right. again? Exactly. Yeah, because I've seen people where they've actually mm -hmm. gone up to oh, they 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 fix the unit test so it passes <laughs> instead of actually fixing <laughs> the code. Like, exactly. no, 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 it's the other way around, folks. You fix the codes this way that, now if there is an issue with the test itself, that's one thing. Then, okay, if there's a real genuine issue with the test itself or it's not, or if the code has changed such that you need to update another unit test so it, it's actually doing what it's supposed to do, that's one thing. So that's, uh, yeah, but you don't just modify the test to make it fast. That's not a good thing. So like in the uh, coding industry, a lot of coders deal with uh, imposter syndrome. Is that something you've had to deal with yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, when I got into medical device, I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's, just, it's it's kind of like, I mean, I, I, when I got into it, you just you're kind of like, okay, am I really this good? Am I really good enough to do this? And you kind of have a lot of self-doubt, uh, but it's just really just, you just punch your way through it. And, you know, even when I start doing product management, same thing. You're like, okay, you keep hearing about product management, but okay, now you're doing it. You're the one managing it. So now what? And uh, so it's, yeah, I think everybody goes to imposter syndrome at some level, but it's just a matter of just building up the confidence. Like, look, you can do this. It's you just have to just, just focus on what you have to do. Exactly. And so you uh, trans transitioned over to project management. Is the skill set like a lot different? Yeah, it's just slightly different. And what happens is you take your technical skill set and you just bring it into product management. So you understand things from a technical standpoint. But when you're getting into uh, like product management, it's more your personal skills <laughs> that, that matter. This is more like team building, uh, just working with people, understanding people, and it's sort of like you sort of uh, lead by influence more than anything else. So it's really more personal skills, more EQ. Uh, <laughs> 
Is, is it like a lot more hands off of the code and more so dealing with personalities and things of that nature? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's, I, I don't have so much, uh, hands on with the code, but it's more of a deal with personalities and everything. So that, that's where you're dealing with a different set of issues, if you will. <laughs> do, do you ever miss like, uh, miss the coding or are you kind of happy where you're at? Uh, I'm pretty happy where I'm at, actually. Uh, I don't miss the code well, too much. <laughs> I will say that. I do miss it some. I will say, I will admit that. Uh, do I miss it too much? Yeah, not really. But <laughs> but but, it, but I will say this much: it, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun, and you know, I've been. Uh, I mean, there, there are times where, yeah, it would be nice to get a little bit of hands on here and there, but just keep it to certain certain places. That's it. <laughs> So can, can you tell us like uh, some of the strategies of successfully dealing with all these different personalities and keeping them on task? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a little tricky. It's kind of like hurting cats in a way, but a lot of it is just really uh, sitting down and talking with them, you know, and understanding who they are, learning learning who they are, you know, what they're what they do at the company. You know, just spending time, just really uh, doing a lot of relationship building and seeing how you, how the two of you can work together. And just figure out, hey, what's our common ground? You know, what are your concerns? Okay, you know, see what we can do to work it out. And I've uh, usually just spent just time just talking with them, just get to know them. And often just just building just relationships, understanding where they're coming from as far as uh, their work and, you know, what we have to get done and make sure that everybody knows we're on the same team and just try to work things out. If we have conflict, okay, we just work it out, go from there. So like, uh, I know some of the newer employees that you brought on, they're probably dealing with imposter syndrome. So like, how do you help them manage it and not mm -hmm. feel overwhelmed? Well, I actually brought on one, um, one new recent college grad over at Abbott's. And uh, so this is his first real corporate job ever. So he's going to medical vices and it's like, oh my goodness, it's just overwhelming and all the training you go through. And so I was, I've been helping him out just sort of, you know, sort of easing him in and showing him the way and, okay, here's some, oh, you need some help with here. Okay. I know some people who you should talk to. Hey, talk to these people. And so sort of just guiding him along on his journey and sort of giving, giving introductions to other people. Say, so, hey, hey, here's this, <laughs> hey, here's this, uh, here's our new hire. Here's what going to be doing. And it sort of like helps us break the ice and uh, just just uh, just get them introduced, and if you ask questions, let's bring them up. And say, okay, what do you have? And I'll help guide them away. And if I don't know know the answer, I'll find someone who does know the answer, and I'll just fall back. So, like, what what are what are some of the traits you like for uh, people that are on your team, like uh, new hires or? Uh, let's see, for new hires, well, let's say for for what for at least with our with our teams, uh, people who are curious, people who generally want to help others in healthcare. Um, it's like really just have just have a really good mindset about the customer really and that's really what it comes down to because uh, given we're dealing with given what we're to work what we work on it's very important that um, you know people have our customer focused and think about the customer all the time because that's what we always do we do it at it so maybe being customer focused especially you know just having a good just showing up and you know, just do your job and you know just being able to follow through on your tasks you know 
pretty much that. And it, it's it's not so much the technical skills that you can pick up. It's not a big deal because every company is a little bit different. And um, yeah, so that's pretty much what we look for. And uh, he came on board and he's been crushing it. He's been doing a great job. So if he can do it, anybody else can do it. <laughs> so how about like more senior developers? Like what, what do you expect from them? Uh, let's see. For senior developers, I would definitely expect more of a leadership, just being able to take over uh, some leadership on the on the team, and either they own a component, being able to just drive it, being leading a team, uh, being able to work across multiple teams within the company. Because I mean, being out, it's huge. Can work with different teams across the country, and being able to work well with others—that's a big deal, especially when you're a senior position. Because <laughs> as you go up, the higher up. Uh, and as a software engineer, you have to work with more people because you're not just in front of your computer typing away, doing your own mm -hmm. thing. Uh, but as you move up, move up the uh, hierarchy, yeah, you're dealing with different type, different groups, different people, uh, different personality types that you probably would not be mixing with on a regular basis. So yeah, so getting along with others, that's a very important skill set. That's something that in my past, I wasn't so good at. <laughs> I had to learn that <laughs> skill. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, uh, you know, with software, you're usually, you know, when you're first starting off, you're in your own head, just solving problems. You can complete silence pretty much. But as as you start growing, you have to start communicating with people. That's right. Definitely. What, what were some strategies that you utilize to kind of like break out of that old mentality and really develop your communication skills? Mm. Well, a lot of it just came down to uh, talking with uh, my bosses, you know, or it's just developing my skills and how to develop them and do a better job. So it just came down to uh, just learning, <laughs> just learning how to talk to different types of people and just that. But I think the really, the one thing that really did help me was when my first job, when I worked at Jandal Scientific, uh, that was my, I was, I spent my first years working in technical support. So if you want to talk to a lot of different people, you learn very quickly right there. Uh, so I definitely had to pull back. It's like, what did I do over at Jandel? Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so dealing with how to deal with conflict and how to deal with uh, angry people who are not so happy because oh, my software isn't working or something. So I had to go back to just read. I had to relearn some of the old skills I had from back then. So like, uh, how, how do you kind of like disarm somebody that has uh, the angry personality? I'm sure you come across that a lot. Oh, yeah. I've, uh, Jeez, we, we had a few, uh, I like, remember we had a few, uh, especially we had a couple of bad updates and oh. get the angry phone call. And it's like, oh boy. <laughs> or certain customers we knew were, um, uh, shall we say, a little, little loud, <laughs> if you will, mm -hmm. you know, on the complaints. So I would just try to diffuse the situation. Okay, yes, we understand what your problem is. Just try to sort of talk them down a little bit. It's, okay, tell me more about it. Just sort of like let them talk and let them know that we're listening to them. And in fact, uh, well, what there was one incident where when I was at research robotics, we had one doctor who was not happy with um, one click we had. I don't know what happened. And he uh, so I was there to do a software update. And so he he comes into the office. So he sees so he sees us. We're there. Right? We're doing our updates and we're just minding our own business. So he comes in and he's like, yeah, we have these problems and all this like. Okay, doctor. Well, tell me about what this. Yeah, I heard about you had some problems. Can you tell me what they are? And so I, so I whip out my notebook. I start writing notes. I ended up writing seven pages of notes, and I wrote down all of everything he said verbatim, you know, curse words and everything. And 
It's like, okay, great. Well, thank you so much, doctor. Okay. All right. Thank you for the feedback. Oh, oh by the way, when you mentioned about this, what were you doing at the time? So, so this way I could see what he was doing. Uh, and he showed what he was doing. So, oh, okay. I see what you're doing. So, okay, so here's what you need to do instead. Okay. And so, sorry, I tried to help him along the way. So instead, so some of his concerns were simply, oh, you just had to do a different approach. So I just sort of calmed them down. So this way he knew, oh, somebody was listening to him. I gave him a solution to understand, oh, it's not so bad after all. And then of course I took all my notes, went back to our director regulatory and I said, okay, here's a bunch of notes I got from this doctor. We need to deal with this. So we had to triage all that stuff. And we had to figure out, okay, was he, which was a legitimate complaint, which was a bug, which was a feature. <laughs> and so we had to prioritize it then. Yeah, it was a lot of work. Hmm. So I know like uh, with management, uh, you, you may also have to deal with offshore teams or <laughs> your whole team onshore. Um, <clears throat> uh, some teams have been offshore, but most of them, been, most of them are in the US. So how, how do you uh, deal with like, you know, the some of the issues that may come up with offshore teams, like maybe, uh, you know, sometimes there's communication differences and mm. especially time zone differences. Yeah. Yeah, with time zones, it's always interesting. Because uh, you know, I've worked with, uh, we have, about, I've worked with a couple of teams who might be in it, who have been in India. So they're, you know, how many hours ahead of us? So if you try to time the, try to time the meetings, and of course, being on the West Coast, we're the ones who end up had to be up very early or very late, one or the other. Uh, also with Europe, same thing, because uh, they're what nine hours ahead or ten hours, depending on where they're at. Uh, so it was always always fun to set those up. But really, uh, what it comes down to with uh, promoting, just like early and often, just keep talking with them, and just make sure you keep an open communication and let them know if there is a problem. You know, just try to bring it up and try to be tactful about it, because <laughs> you have different cultures and different language barriers as well in terms of how they express themselves in in English because it's probably their second or third language. And mm -hmm. you know how we say it is totally different from how they'll say it in Europe or somewhere in India. So they just have to be cognizant of that. And once you understand, oh okay, <laughs> once you understand differences, things go pretty smoothly. Have you ever come across like any cultural discrepancies that okay now I know this so I'm not going to make that mistake again. Mm, I haven't had, haven't had, haven't gone through that, thankfully, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know um, you also do like teaching. So can you tell us yeah. a little bit about teaching and what, what made you want to get into teaching? Yeah. Well, so I've been an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco you know, for many years right now. And this is about what, 2017. And uh, so I teach one of the business analytics classes. Uh, business 204. And so I got I had thought about teaching as sort of very cash, like sort of like this little idea you have in the back of your head. Hey, it'd be nice to be teaching it someday or something. And then one of my professors at USF, uh, Professor Moffis of Valley, who is a great guy. Uh, and he uh, we were at some meetup and he comes up to his hey, Eric, which you're interested in teaching business 204. It's like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's the uh, graduate version of the analytics class you took in the EVA program. So, okay. And uh, said, okay, it sounds good. And so I just went from there. And so he just, he set it up and I started teaching <laughs> just like that. So uh, is teaching something you're doing full-time or you kind of mix it in with uh, your current, uh, like a current job? I mix it in with my current job. <laughs> 
Does it ever get like overwhelming, like doing all of that? Yeah, not really. It, it's a matter of ha a lot of it's preparation. Uh, so I try to prep as much as I can. Uh, so typically I'll spend, uh, at least in the, in the period between semesters, I'll spend a lot of time just preparing, you know, what lessons I want to give, you know, what example files, even build out what I might do for the midterms for that matter. Just start to really prep as much as I can just to make it a little bit easier. And plus I also, uh, ping pong ideas with another colleague of mine who's also another adjunct professor. So we sort of get ideas from him and I've uh, even taken some of his material and used that as well. So it's actually nice. We have a little little thing where we share ideas and share material just to make things a little smoother. Has your uh, teaching style evolved over time as you, uh, you know, you started learning new ways of transmitting the information to students? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's a bit of a transition, you know, like the first year was kind of a little rough, of course, because it's like, okay, you're just getting into, you know, being on the other side of the podium, if you will. So it's a little different. It's like, you're used to sitting over there. Now you're in the front of the class, you're teaching. It's a whole different ball game. So a little rough, eh, which is, you know, what it is, you just get, get the uh, butterflies out of you. And then, um, then gradually get into a rhythm. So you figure out, okay, what works, what does not work. You do a better job of reading the students and understanding, okay, what's going on in the room, try to read them. And then you just make adjustments accordingly. And even during the semester, I'll make adjustments accordingly. I'll just sort of read the room and say, okay, they seem to be struggling on this material. Let's spend some more time on that. Or students are having more questions on something else. All right, let's put some more examples out. Like today's lecture, I did some more you know, product mix examples you know, for linear programming. So I, I had, so I said, okay, here's two more examples I want you to work through. We're going groups. Spend so the next 10, 15 minutes, bang, banging away at it. Go for it. I will, I will go through it. And so part of it is to get them involved working with each other and learning from one another as well. So that was another approach I took uh, during COVID. Of course, it was a little bit different. So I had to set up breakout rooms and do that. So actually with Zoom wasn't so, so bad. Um, so it actually worked out pretty well there, fortunately. Uh, were your classes always online or was that more like a, something that came about once COVID hit? Uh, when, once COVID hit, they became online. Like right now they're in person, but before they were in person, when COVID hit, everything went online, of course. And then uh, then now we've gone back to in person. <laughs> well, did you, did you have to like change things up uh, to accommodate the online uh, style of teaching? Mm -hmm. A little bit. Yeah, I had to change things just a little bit just to keep the, the students engaged because it's too easy to sit on the other side of a monitor and check out and <laughs> that's it. And you'll still have some who will do that. But it's like they, they did log in and you'll see their name listed and it's like, and then all the lecture's over and you'll see their names up there and they oh, hi, you have any questions? And silence. <laughs> so you know they're not there. Yeah. Yeah, lights on, nobody home. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> So like, what are some of the ways that you uh, really keep students engaged? Like how do you just grab their attention? Well, sometimes I'll just uh, like, I choose to do something at random because <laughs> I've done that. But I've uh, also uh, uh, just in terms of just try to just encourage them to speak up. <laughs> you know, so I, I try to at least, uh, at least present myself. Hey, look, this is a class. We're here to learn. If you have a question, Please raise it up. Raise your hand. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can ask me in private or you can do an office hour via Zoom or whatever. And I've noticed even this semester, 
and people are a little bit timid. But then now I've noticed certain students are speaking up a lot more. <laughs> they, you're getting a lot more confidence. So they know, oh, okay, he's here to, he's more than happy to answer the question. Like, yes, absolutely. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Um, you find like teaching rewarding like have you ever had any students like come back later and be like yeah I, re I really thank you for you know <laughs> for enlightening me on this or that yeah i've had a couple of them which is which is great you know so it's, it's really nice to have or have a, a former student where they, they go hey professor uh hey could you write me a letter of recommendation or stuff <laughs> like that it's like, okay great thanks and then, you know at least they remember you these <laughs> for the good things <laughs> I also see that uh, you got into like some nonprofit work. Can you tell us a little bit about right. that? Yes. Uh, so I uh, do uh, some nonprofit uh, data science consulting with a with a company called uh, Delta Analytics. Uh, so we're a nonprofit that provides free data science consulting to nonprofit companies. So we work uh, with clients all over the world. We've worked with local local companies all the way to the British Broadcast Corporation, who were oh, wow. our previous client. And so we do all types of data science projects ranging from dashboards all the way to full-blown machine learning models doing image and signal processing. So it's a, it really depends on each client uh, in terms of what their needs are. Uh, so I've been working with them since uh, 2017 and still working on the op operation. I work in the operations team right now. So we're just helped to organize all of our, uh, all of our projects. And then we uh, go ahead and once we set up we try to set up different clients and figure out how we match all of our, uh, uh, well, we have, we have a cohort the way it works. So, so let me just go backward. So we have, we have a cohort, it starts in January, it goes through about June. So we uh, bring on, uh, so, we, so we put out a uh, big, uh, uh, big like call for data scientists and people who want to volunteer. And so, so you sign up and we have different machine learning or analytics projects, depending on what they're interested in doing. So we set them up with a client on a different team. They have, each team has a, uh, has a, has a sort of a project manager. So they'll have like three or four data scientists assigned to that team. And then they go ahead and work with the client <laughs> over the next six months. Okay. So yeah, what made you want to get into nonprofit work? Uh, it wasn't so much specifically nonprofit. It was really more of the data science aspect of it, because uh, I've been in data science for, for many years, uh, even before it's called data science. And for me, it was a nice way of applying some of my data science to a real uh, to a real problem. And I figured, hey, it's a, even though it's volunteer work, it's quite useful. It helps out someone else, and it's a nice way to build your network, build your skill sets. Uh, it's it was just great you know, because I wasn't getting enough data science opportunities in my professional work. So I just said, okay, well, I'm getting more out of this. You know, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, it seems like volunteering is a great way to get experience. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, some something that you, you're you not getting in your, you know, your corporate job. Absolutely. It, it's a great way to get experience, even if it paid or unpaid, it doesn't matter. It, experience is experience. Like, uh, so how if somebody wanted to, kind of volunteer at that particular uh, nonprofit, what would they have to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so also I know we're going to be, we are going to be putting together a um, uh, a call for uh, for our next cohort. We're actually setting it up right now. Uh, so go to deltaanalytics.org. It's, uh, I say, can I actually type it, actually type the name of it? Or is it, uh, 
Yeah, I, I can paste it in the show notes, uh, the description. Yeah, I can see here. if I can get the website here. Uh, it shows up here. Okay, I get this. Ah, uh, here we go. So you got the notes up there? Uh, uh, no, I don't have them up just yet. Okay, all right. Yeah, so it's uh, well, it's the Delta. It's D E L T A and N A L Y T I C S dot org. But if we type it in, it'll be a lot easier. Here we go. Okay, yeah, I got it. So y'all uh, put this in the in the description. Oh, okay. So so it's on the. Uh, is it in the chat or the? Oh yeah, yeah you can paste it in the chat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's see if I can if I do the chat here. <laughs> For some reason, I can't seem to get the chat to work here. Uh, how about I, I'll send it to you this way? It'll be easier. Yeah, you can send it to my uh, LinkedIn. Yeah, just do it right now. There you go. Got it. So yeah, what what are some of the more interesting projects that uh that Delta Analytics have worked on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in fact, uh, let's see, well, a couple of them that we actually worked on um, in terms of some of the projects. Uh, so actually, a couple I've actually worked on. Uh, so there was one project uh, where we're actually developing uh, uh, a sort of a uh, a brand new uh, a data pipeline for a company called Career Village. Uh, so Career Village is kind of like a, a stack overflow uh, for career questions you know, for uh, for uh, for youth. So they can ask questions. Hey, I'm interested in being a software engineer. What sort of skills do they need? They can type type the question, and it goes to volunteers who would answer that question. Hmm. And so uh, so they needed a new uh, a new data pipeline, and also a better recommendation engine. So this way, if you're a software engineer, you get software engineering questions. And not a question on accounting, for example. So they came to us so we could develop a brand new recommendation engine so they could do a better job of matching and making sure that they can do better recommendations, but also they can get responses in a more timely manner. So this way, a question doesn't just sit there for three days. They want to make sure, hey, what's, hey, can we send to people who are responding more frequently? You know, how do we speed this up and do to get better answers as well. So we're trying to look at the quality of the answer in addition to that. So were they really answering their question well, or is it just a really quick, quick answer? And then we had to do some data pipelining for them as well. So develop a whole brand new data pipeline into Django right from scratch. No, oh, wow. So like, uh, what, what exactly goes on behind like developing something like that? Like what, what goes on with the recommendation engine? Oh, uh, it's uh, let's see here. I don't have the source code with me, but basically, what it comes down to is doing a lot of natural language processing <laughs> and just parsing out all of using. Uh, you know, so we're using a, a library that actually helps with that because we're actually building off of a, the previous project uh, that we did for them the year before, where they actually were developing a way of quickly finding keywords in in a sentence. So, if a question was okay, what sort of skill sets do I need for software engineering? You it would pick out individual words and then try to match up as best they could. And so you're doing a lot of work under the hood using uh, 
a lot of NLP, natural language processing, uh, to do all the word matching, which I don't pretend to know at all. <laughs> It'd be hard for me to describe it, uh, but that's what it does under the hood. So for those uh, who aren't really aware, what, what exactly is a uh, natural language processing? If you can give like a kind of like a just general overview. Well, it's a way that it's just doing data science on text. So you're dealing with you know, anything with uh, anything that's textual. So that, uh, like chat, email and so forth, you know, anything that's written communication like that. It's different from the general numbers that you work with. <laughs> is, is that a field that's mathematics heavy? Yes, it is very. I don't work in that field. I, I work more on the, the I, my data science is more on the numbers side. So I don't have much visibility to be in NLP, but I know they use a lot of math. So this is kind of like a general, like, you know, pretty broad question, but like what, what, what are the, the uh, more relevant branches of mathematics to study if somebody really wanted to become a solid programmer? Oh, or speaking of solid programmer, let's see. Let's see. For as far as the math side, well, this, well, what they call it's called, it's called discrete structures or discrete math. That that's one. That's one subject you definitely should know. Uh, probability theory, calculus, linear algebra for sure. Uh, that that that's definitely important. Let's see. Let's see calculus. Let's see. Those would be the primary ones, I would say. <laughs> now, so in terms like, of okay. Go ahead. Oh yeah, what what exactly is uh, discrete mathematics? Like, what what is the that what does that field study? Well, it goes to, it's pretty much a com computer math. That's the way to describe it. Uh, there's a lot of, bit of theoretical. So it goes into true tables, propositional logic, and going to these their types of subjects. So it does go a little bit, a little bit low level. It goes to some theoretical math. And in fact, I do have a couple of books over here and I can go through some of them a little bit more. Uh, but uh, of course, it's been a while since I dusted them off because <laughs> I don't use them that often. Uh, but really, it goes to a lot of theoretical computer math in terms of how it goes into induction logic, mostly, I'd say, from what I recall. It's been a while. <laughs> and uh, what, what about linear algebra? What is that studying exactly? Okay, well, for linear algebra, you're just simply a so that's used extensively in computer graphics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're doing transformations of an object and from one one position to another location. Used used everywhere in the computer graphics, used in statistics as well uh, for doing calculations. Uh, of course, you know, it's used in quite a few areas. And of course, you're doing simultaneous equation solving and a lot of transformations <laughs> in 2D and 3D. That's where it's useful. Do you think uh, it's possible for somebody to teach themselves these branches of mathematics, or is it almost uh, necessary for them to go to school? Oh, could they learn it on their own? Yes, they could. They just take a lot of dedication. Mm. Uh, I don't think you necessarily need a college degree to be a software engineer, because I know a lot of people who uh, do not have a college degree, and they've been successful software engineers. But... Uh, then again, a lot of people, they learned it on the job or if they were like me as a hobbyist, you know, you just learned it over the years and you just picked it up and that was it. it just went from there, uh, just from practice. So uh, yeah, could you pick up your own? Sure. Would it be a little harder? Perhaps depends. But if you got the motivation to do it, and especially nowadays, you've got, you know, all these online courses that we never had back in yeah. the day because you got Khan Academy, Coursera, you've got... Udemy and 
you know, a plethora of others out there that you can learn from as well. So what, what, what do you think about uh, design patterns? Is it really important that the software developers learn about them and mm -hmm. implement them in the code or? Uh, yes, yeah, design patterns are definitely important. <laughs> definitely, you use them everywhere. Uh, it's, it's something that I've had to learn and relearn over the years and often we use these patterns without even realizing it. <laughs> Uh, so usually, uh, of course, the big ones like Singleton, Composition, you know, Decorator, and a handful of others, I forgot the top of my head. So it's definitely an important subject. What, what do you feel about like data structures and algorithms? Well, I've had sort of a, uh, shall we say, a mixed history on that one, shall we say. <laughs> I think I largely <laughs> because of this was just poorly taught. And I think that's where it really came from. So really, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with DSA because it's just the way it was taught. I think that's where it comes from. They just did a very poor job for the most part. And, and it sort of like rubs off on you like, hey, God, what is this stuff? <laughs> and especially in grad school, I had a, uh, a graduate version of it and teacher was lousy. <laughs> and it's like, we had an lecture on binary trees and I'm like, okay, I know binary trees well. I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and some of the students are walking out going, what is he saying? It's like, don't feel bad. I know this stuff. I don't know what he said. So <laughs> we're all in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I mean, they're important. They're important. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yes, we use them every single day. Maybe we're not implementing them from scratch, but we do use them every single day. Yes, they're important to understand, know how they work. You know, so yes, you do have to learn. So like, uh, how would you recommend somebody pick them up, say, uh, if they're just trying to learn it from scratch? Oh boy, trying to learn from scratch. Let's see. Well, if you want to learn from scratch, probably I would though there are multiple ways you can do it. I mean, of course, there's uh, various websites where you show how to where you can create them from scratch, of course. Um, I think uh, there was actually one um there was one course from Stanford, uh, where it goes uh was a CS106 where they actually had a uh, they had a really good tutorial where they showed here's how to create a, a linked list, a binary tree, a queue, and they actually went through the actual step by step. It was actually pretty good. I don't have it off the top of my head somewhere. I know I got somewhere on here. Uh, but yeah, there's online resources, of course. There's also just getting a, there are also various very good books out there as well. Um, lots of tutorials that are out there. There's so many tutorials on the internet. My goodness, it's like stuff I wish we had <laughs> years ago. Because we just had books to learn from. <laughs> and nowadays, you can actually find the code. And for Stack Overflow, is a big one. And then you can just learn it and understand you know, how they work and why, when you would use one over another, <laughs> go from there. So yeah, uh, like for somebody who's uh, progressing in their software careers, like how, how would you advise them to you know, really make progress? And what, what are some landmines to avoid? Um, I'd say um, focus on the fundamentals. That's the one thing, because those will carry you throughout your career period. And try to st it, try not to get too distracted with the new uh, new shiny stuff that comes out. You know, this, the shiny object syndrome. Uh, but really, uh, I would say just looking back on my career, uh, focus on your EQ as well as your IQ, because uh, that's a mistake I've made in my past, where I let my IQ take over from the EQ. And I think it held me back to some extent, or at least 
definitely had I done a better job on the EQ, it probably would have been a little bit better in some places. <laughs> That's so I would focus on that as well. <laughs> so yeah, just shifting to a slightly different subject. Um, what, what, what do you think about like the metaverse and you know, all of these, some of these new tech ideas or really <laughs> old tech ideas is repackaged? Right. Yeah, what, what do you think about the web three and things of that eh. nature? I haven't kept up with web three because uh, I'm not in the web development space. I did it once and said, nope, not for me. And that's okay. And I went back to scientific software and stay there. Uh, for the, for the uh, metaverse, it's virtual reality. It's what we had back in the 90s. <laughs> and yeah. it's uh, like, okay, it's great, but we'll see what comes out of it. Yeah, it's been a little disappointing to me. Like uh, the metaverse mm -hmm. verses that I've seen, they just really don't look that good. They look like something that was developed in the 90s. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> in fact, that was what's funny is there was, um, they were trying to do a lot of the, when they were trying to do the, um, you know, the 3D glasses that were back in the 90s, it was, you would get headaches from that stuff. It was just insane. Uh, in fact, uh, there, it reminds me, there was uh, an arcade. It was called Virtual World. And so essentially they put you in this big pod. It was kind of like a giant um, video game where you're, you're playing mech warriors and mm -hmm. you'd be in this like deathmatch arena you're shooting each other with missiles and machine guns and other stuff. And it was just absolutely crazy. And this is back in the nineties when CPU power was not quite as big as we have now. Mm -hmm. So in order to power this thing, they had a whole room filled of Mac two computers just stacked from the floor to the ceiling. And it's like, what the hell? They were just like this huge setup, and it would crash on a regular basis. And it, it's like, yeah, we got to wait for it. I got to reboot this thing. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> but that was the way it was. It was so bleeding edge at the time that you had these crazy hiccups. But it was the coolest thing ever. And in fact, uh, we did that for, for one class, for our operating systems class. We actually did a field trip, if you will. Four of us went to Virtual World at Walnut Creek. California, and we just played there. He said, "Okay, we're having, we're just playing hooky from class. We're just gonna have some fun here." And then so he's like, "Well, what do we do for? Um, let's see, we gotta give him a book report to the professor. Let him know what we learned and how this relates to operating systems." And so we wrote up a little paper. We turned it in. He's like, "Oh, good job. You got an A." <laughs> it was crazy. So it sounds sound like uh, you're really into PC gaming at a point. Yeah, I was probably more into it back then. Not so much now. Okay, what, what were some of the games you played back then? Oh, geez, I'm trying to remember, golly, it's like, golly, I'm trying to remember some of the names back then. My goodness, there's so many of them. Oh, my God, yeah, of course, there was, uh, there was a, uh, was it Chuck Yeager's Flight Simulator? That was a nice one. We switched back in the day. That was like a cutting edge thing. There's an Abrams uh, tank simulator program. Anything from Microprose, mm -hmm. especially their flight simulators. I liked their flight simulators mostly because they were just a lot of fun. And there was the F-15, the F-19, uh, F-117, the, the Black Hawk, one, uh, the Nighthawk one. The, so anyway, flight simulators that got, or anything with the uh, military in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one game I really enjoyed on the Atari was Eastern Front. Uh, that was made by uh, Chris Crawford, who was the famous game designer. Uh, a great classic game. This is where you, you're essentially, uh, the, um, you're the Germans, you're trying to invade Russia. <laughs> Uh, was called Operation Barbarossa at the time. And so you're trying to win the game. <laughs> that was actually pretty cool. So those are the type of games I used to play. Yeah, it kind of seems like uh, 
games were really streamlined now, like PC games, they they didn't hide the complexity from you. No, no, they, they really didn't. Hmm. Did you get into like XCOM or any of those? Hmm, nothing like those. Okay, more like the simulations. Yeah, more of that. So yeah, like uh, how do how do like what what do you do outside of work? Like how do you avoid burnout? Well, well for for uh, for avoid burnouts, you know, I do uh, gardening, photography, woodworking, okay. as well. So those are some of my activities to keep me going. Woodworking is a lot of fun because it's a uh, a very tactile type of hobby where you're interacting with with the with wood and you're just using your hands, using tools as opposed to using a keyboard. Which is rather two-dimensional in a way. So you know, instead of building you know, applications with ones and zeros, you're actually physically building something with your hands. So you get the using different, you're building different skill sets using different part of your brain. And you get to work with uh, wood, which is uh, an organic material, which does change, you know, because it does absorb water. And so you have to factor that in your when you're building a project. And it's like right now I'm building a table for my parents and so I'm trying to go, okay, how do I do the layout for this? And so but I guess I want it to fit a certain way. And so there's a bit of problem solving there. Uh, so it's maybe not on the level of what we do in software engineering, but there is problem solving. And yes, you're using some math and using angles and fractions and what have you. So it's a, it's a very nice distraction from my day-to-day work. Yeah, I try woodworking. Uh, I'm not good at it, man. So I had to give it up. <laughs> <laughs> it takes practice. And my... I, uh, when I uh, restarted it, uh, it was, yeah, I was, wasn't all that good, but I know, but over time it's got a lot better where I'm making full blown furniture now. So oh, wow. It's, so you just build all your furniture now or not quite getting there though. <laughs> I'm a share of it. Uh, so in fact, I'm going to be building a, a new dresser probably next year. Oh, wow. What about uh photography? Are you really into that? Yeah, I was. Uh, I do a lot of uh, landscape and nature photography mostly. So that's you use just like the iPhone, or you have like a dedicated uh, camera? Um, I use a Canon uh, 60. Okay, yeah, I recently just bought a Nikon, so I'm about to mm-hmm. start getting into it. But it's a pretty expensive uh, hobby there. Oh yeah, here, yeah, yeah, it's a very expensive hobby. I'm, I'm glad I got my all my lenses when I did, because now the lenses are really expensive now. Oh, and then yeah. of course now they have the RF mount. And so now the uh, BF mount's gonna be slowly but surely going away. And some of the lenses that I use, which are classics, they're now no longer sold. So oh, wow. it's, so some of them are collectors now, I think. So all right, take care of them. I heard Canon was, uh, they're not allowing third party uh, lenses. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty bad about that. <laughs> What we'll made you choose a uh, Canon over like a Nikon, Fuji, Sony? Uh, I uh, well, my dad was a Canon person. Uh, he had an original F one back in the day, uh, mm. which had a completely different mounts, and so I just we I just knew Canon. There's I just knew the system basically. There's nothing against Nikon or any of the other companies. I know Nikon makes great great cameras. It's, I just never used it before, and I knew what Canon was. Like, okay, I'll just stick with Canon. <laughs> What about uh, gardening? Uh, how how deep do you get with that? Uh, pretty deep, actually. I've been um, so I got a garden right now. I got uh, 
a Fuji apple tree, a lemon tree, mm. lots of vegetables, you know, blueberries, and roses, and various herbs. <laughs> I've even built uh, raised planter beds uh, using some of my woodworking, just building those up using uh, cedar and Douglas fir posts. And, yeah, quite yeah, a bit of work. Not a fun, though. Yeah, yeah, sounds fun. Uh, you know, I think it's important, especially as, uh, you know, it seems like we're having food issues and all of that, supply chain shortages. You might want to yeah. start learning to grow your own food. Oh, yeah. Just takes a while, but it's worth it. Worth, and plus, you know where it came from, too. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially what you see in the market. Sometimes it's not so good. And, you know, I, I've been having enjoying my apples off the tree. They've been absolutely delicious. And in fact, I grow my own potatoes as well. So oh, that's wow. always good. And, you know, when I first started growing potatoes here, my wife thought it was nuts. Like, why would you just buy them from the store? It's like, no, wait, try them from the ground. Totally different taste. And she was blown away. She said, uh, plant some more. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, they taste totally different when you, when you grow them yourself. It's not like the, the russets you get in the store. It's, you get, you notice you have less starch. You have different flavor, much better. And plus you can go to any nursery. You can buy the little seed potatoes and just, for different different uh species where you like where it's red potato purple potato yukon gold whatever it's like yeah. Yeah. no I, yeah, I have to look into that man I, I agree with you that things taste different like my dad he uh plants a lot of fruit trees and you right. know like the peaches and stuff they taste way better off the oh, yeah. you can let them get more ripe mm -hmm. absolutely yeah my in fact my uh my grandfather he uh uh he grew up on a farm so course he used to grow all types of vegetables and everything and they had a they had a orange tree that was about three stories tall oh, and wow. it generated oranges that are about the size of a about the size of a softball they're just huge and they're just very super sweet just incredible and uh, you know it's a shame when they they move from that house like yeah get before you leave get a bunch of bags of those oranges please so we can enjoy them <laughs> Uh, and then the sad part was the, uh, the new owners eventually they tore down that tree, which is oh, just horrible. Is that that tree had probably been probably a good 80, 90 years old and is, is huge. Uh, and it produced such wonderful fruit. Like, You've got orange juice right here. <laughs> right. And couldn't get any better than that, but oh well. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's something I want to get into once uh, I'm able to purchase a house. But you know, the price of those is shooting through the roof. So, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's definitely definitely worth it to have your own garden. It's a nice distraction from all the tech we're working with. And as much as I love tech, well, <laughs> you need distraction to do something else. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. pretty much all the questions I can think of. Did you have any uh, closing thoughts? Well, let's see. As far as closing thoughts, as far as uh, for, so for anybody who wants to get the medical devices, um, don't let it scare you off. It's actually a very exciting field to get into. And I think anybody can get into it. There's no question about it. I mean, if I could get a new college grad right out of school, first corporate job and go in here and start cr and just crushing it, well, anybody can. It's just really, uh, uh, it, it's a really good, good field, very exciting. The health tech, there's a lot of innovation going on out there. So it's something to definitely consider if you haven't sure um, whereas that's where i spent you know, 16 years and, and counting <laughs> it's been a lot of fun get to work with some cool exciting projects and you know hopefully uh be able to help improve people's lives 
for sure. Yeah, I, know, I know a lot of developers might be looking for like a mentor. Or they might have questions. Are they free to reach out to absolutely. you? Absolutely. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You got questions about um, anything on medical devices, software engineering in general, you know, building up your career. Absolutely. We're more than happy to help out. Uh, man, we definitely appreciate you for uh, coming on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch y'all next time. Y'all have a good night.